Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is former speechwriter to Joe Biden and author of the new book Undelivered, Jeff Nussbaum. It's going to be a treat. And remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist, Magic Spoon, and Real Paper in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, uh, big bombshell this week. Uh, the leaked <laughs> Justice Alito draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. It's a political hand grenade if, it's, if it stands. Uh, and uh, there is a 5-4 vote to overturn Roe. It's a question of which side throws and which side receives that grenade. The country, by a two-to-one margin, supports Roe v. Wade, uh, the right to an abortion. So this should be a big boost for Democrats. They need it this year. God knows. But the pro-choice groups have been better at staging fundraisers, marches, and writing dire warnings than at political organizers. They've been consistently outpointed by the anti-abortionists despite the polls for years. So it's fine if they turn out more votes in California, New York, and Massachusetts, but the test will be whether they'll get down and dirty and activate voters on this issue in Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia, because this is, this is primarily um, going to affect uh, non-college educated women and younger people and minorities, and that's what they have to turn out. Bag the demonstrations at Kavanaugh or Barrett's homes. Uh, protests matter little without the kind of political work they need, James. I, 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 well, first, I, I agree with what you said, but I, I think this is a much more profound moment. This culminates a riot, a, not, I mean, a rout, a rout of center-left and center-left ideas, or not even a center center-left ideas. And this is gone, blown up, so ineffective since 1973. They've been, they, you had Roe, and it's been one defeat after another, it was done with a with a Supreme Court that, in my opinion, was not duly elected. Any any of the Bush appointees, of course, because the Supreme Court so Bush v. Gore. But understand what this is. This is a route, and what's getting ready to be routed. And we'll talk more about. It's not just the right the choices here. The entire concept of of privacy is not in jeopardy. It's gone because the majority of this court says, well, it's not enumerated in the Constitution. In, in, in the Constitution, well, there's the right to birth control bill, by the way. That was the expanded right of privacy in 1965. I guarantee you that they're going to make birth control illegal. They're going to pass a law if they ever get control of Congress and the White House to prohibit the interstate birth control pills and interstate commerce. They're going after everything, and they're going to win everything unless and until the, 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 the Democrats or aligned groups start playing politics. And remember, you're going to have the Chevron overturn the Chevron case, which is going to decimate any regulation of, of, of greenhouse gases or anything like that. You're just starting to lose, people. You're just starting to lose. They're going to kick the crap out of you. And if you're donating money, are you part of this? Reevaluate and demand that these groups 
change the way they do things. They all sit in Washington and go to wine and cheese parties and huddle around and listen to NPR. Well, frankly, the other side is out there organizing in school boards and state mm-hmm. legislative races and state Supreme Court races and attorney general's races and secretary of state races. This is a massive failure. A cannot be, cannot be spun any other way, and it's so much more than just, just row. It's row, and it's that, and that's only part of the story of what's getting ready to happen here. And there has been an imbalance in this country in political will, in political organizing, and it has not it inured to any way the benefit of Democrats. We are getting our asses kicked and understand yeah. that. Yeah, I agree. And the the arrogance of uh, Justice Alito and others, they don't really care. Uh, he said this only applies to abortion. That's your opinion nonsense. They'll, they'll overturn all kinds of things. Uh, I mean, if you, you know, gay marriage, if I if I were uh, if, if, if I were a, a gay couple, I'd worry about that. They already have two justices that say they want to overturn the 64 Times versus Sullivan libel case uh, for the press. I don't think anything is really, really safe now. And, you know, what does get me, though, is there's all this. The, the, the Republicans now are saying the worst thing is leaks. This was a terrible leak. Why did this happened. I don't know who leaked this. Uh, Alan Dershowitz says it was probably a liberal clerk. I think it's probably more likely it was someone from the conservative side to make sure this thing was 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 locked in. But you know, it's not the leak that is 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 hurting this court. This court standing is in terrible shape now today. But I'll tell you why, James. It's in terrible standing because it is seen as more political. Why? Because it is. In 2016, Mitch McConnell changed the size of the court for eight months when he refused to even allow a vote on Merrick Garland because it was an election year. Then 2020, a couple weeks before the election, actually a week before the election, he pushed through uh, on a partisan vote the nomination of Amy Barrett. You know, uh, this court is highly political. That's what it's seen as, and that's what it is. Also, they don't have any ethical rules. Clarence Thomas doesn't recuse himself from an issue involving his wife. Uh, Congress and the White House have ethical rules, conflict of interest. This Supreme Court has none. So if they want to start to restore some of their reputation, clean up their own house. They don't give a shit. They really don't. They don't pay attention to any ethics rules. They don't pay attention to what Jenny Thomas does. You got to understand, they have no fear or no respect of anybody that is remotely to the the left of them. They do not care. And the reason they do not care is because it started with Bush v. Gore and the the Democrats are not going to show up. They can sit there and they can do to Justice Jackson what they did, just with utter disrespect. And, and young Democrats, they're not going to do anything. They're not going to do anything about I, I, I hate to say this, but I hope I'm wrong. I think this will pass, but not great effect. If, if, if the past is any predictor, and I, I'd love to be wrong, I'd love to work to make myself wrong, but I don't think Alito cares and by the way, just you're so not you wrong know, on that. You're absolutely right on that. marriage. That's not. Show me in the, in the Constitution where it says anything about the legislature not being able to outlaw interracial marriage or gay marriage. It, 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 the, the, the Constitution is silent on privacy. So if if it doesn't, it's not the Constitution. It doesn't exist. By the way, the Fourteenth Amendment doesn't exist either. They just we just don't care. We we, we just have we just don't have the Fourteenth Amendment, or we don't have a Fifteenth Amendment. All right, but, but if they, there's no guarantee the right to vote. Are you kidding me? Where, where is it? 
They're not going to pay attention to it. They don't care. And every person listening to this has to know that. And every person here needs to know that, that these groups in Washington, these interest groups, and the, 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 the pro-choice, the women's reproductive health, the climate groups, the everything else are utterly and totally useless. Useless. And in fact, they're not useless. They're actually a drag on us. Well, if you're in Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, or Georgia, um, you better become useful because otherwise uh, there's going to be a lot more of this stuff coming. <laughs> James, speaking of Ohio, uh, there were those who were hoping that Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party was slipping. I'm looking at you, Mitch McConnell. But I'll tell you, when J.D. Vance won that primary yesterday, uh, he, he won it by about eight points, uh, got about 32 percent of the vote. But but before Trump endorsed him a month ago, he was running a distant third. Uh, this was, uh, uh, I think, evidence anew that within the Republican primaries, at least, Donald Trump is still king. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, Mitch McConnell uh, and others, um, uh, you got to deal with him. Yeah, it is, and I don't know. I'm still trying to to figure this out. But he did. He was third. He won. He got 32 percent, which meant that 68 percent of Ohio Republicans went against Trump's recommendation. I don't know what that means. It certainly means that he went from third to first, and. Uh, if you look at the turnout, it was pretty high on their side. You know, and we didn't have a lot of a lot, but it wasn't it, it wasn't that great. Uh, interesting footnote of the so-called progressive wing, whatever that is. I consider my you know, not a, uh, Nina Turner, who is a darling of the urban left. Uh, did she get thirty percent? I don't wasn't think much. so. I think she got yeah, Chantel. I think, Chantel, I think it, Chantel, they beat about. Yeah. I, I don't know how many. A gazillion points, so that if, if if you know, so that the Cory Bush is in the, you know, Rashida leaves and them, it, it, it's, you need to start reading the election results. As I said before, people don't like you. You're not popular. You're not popular among Cleveland, Cuyahoga County Democrats. In fact, you're very unpopular. So there's a real lesson here. Hopefully, somebody learns it. Yeah, I agree. A couple other things to wrap up Ohio, uh, uh, to show you how much that Ohio Republican establishment, uh, how far they've sunk. Rob Portman, the retiring senator, the candidate he endorsed, James, finished fifth, couldn't even get 6% of the vote. Uh, And Mike DeWine, the governor, uh, he did fend off two really fringe uh, challengers who were saying that it was awful that he, uh, you know, required people to wear masks and the like during pandemic. Imagine that. But he got less than 50% of the vote. So uh, I don't know. Maybe the, they, they did have a big, big turnout yesterday. No question. Much bigger than the Democrats. Tim Ryan is the Democratic nominee for the Senate. If anyone, I think, in this year can win, anyone, any Democrat not named Sherrod Brown, uh, it would be Tim Ryan. It's probably going to be a little bit uphill, but he's got a shot. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and that's his, in terms of great candidate. He's a really good guy. And, you know, he's definitely in the Sherwood Brown mode. And it's going to be very tough. But I, I would, he's the horse we got, and, it, and it's a very good one. And uh, Democrats tried this hard. Yeah. And and big test for Trump coming up. He's going to lose the effort to unseat the governor of Georgia. He's probably going to win that North Carolina Senate primary. But the big test, big, big test for him will be Pennsylvania, where he's endorsed the television celebrity doctor, Dr. Oz, running against a rich hedge fund guy. So let's see what happens uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
It'll be a more, it'll be a cleaner result. Yeah, yeah, it will be. be clean. Hey, James, you know, Jeff Nussbaum is one of America's great political speechwriters, an art he has achieved with presidents, members of Congress, and other leaders, even occasionally an ink-stained journalist. He has been obsessed with the speeches that were not given since Al Gore's 2000 campaign with that election night turmoil. So he's written a fascinating book, Undelivered, those never given speeches that would have changed history. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Wonderful stories in Undelivered. Uh, I'll leave the 2016 Hillary Clinton victory speech to James, as painful as it is. I was intrigued by your long, fascinating chapter on Japanese Emperor Hirohito after World War II. He talked, he wanted, but he never could quite deliver the apology for the war. Tell us the story. Yeah, this is really fascinating. And thanks, Al. Thanks, James. It's great to be with you guys. Um, so I started on this hunt, you know, after the election night 2000, when I was left holding three speeches that Al Gore didn't deliver that night. Um, <laughs> and I started looking for where are these other episodes in history where a speech went undelivered? And obviously, you know, elections are an obvious one. Um, but there are a lot that were more obscure. And I started seeing breadcrumbs. And I found an article in an Australian magazine that said that Hirohito was so heartsick over what had happened to his country, what he had led his country into, that he actually wanted to apologize for World War II. And I worked with the Library of Congress uh, and the Japanese Reading Room, and they were able to find the biographer of essentially Hirohito's chief of staff, who had this speech in Japanese. And so I was able to get the speech in Japanese. And in the book, we have the only English translation of this speech that Hirohito wanted to give. And he essentially wanted to apologize, not necessarily for the war, but because at the time the emperor was a god, he was divine. And he wanted to apologize for whatever it was in, in his own moral failings that led his country to ruin. And, and he wanted to give this speech and he wanted to bear his soul. But the challenge with the emperor is that the emperor is not really allowed to be a person. He has to be the nation. And so for him to apologize would have been to admit that he was fallible, that he, there was something wrong, that he made a mistake. And so he would have had to abdicate. And this flowed right into the tension at the time, which is we wanted the emperor's seal of approval on our, on our occupation. There was some thought that if the, if the, if the emperor stepped down, that, that Japan would fight again and that we would need hundreds of thousands more troops to, to complete our occupation of Japan. And so MacArthur, uh, at least on one occasion, refused to let the emperor give the apology speech he wanted to use. And, and one other point on this is the emperor used a term in that speech that, meant, that means something approximating deep, deep shame. And that's a term no Japanese leader has ever used to describe their role in World War II. So it would have been really a, a different kind of thing. Well, I, if he had given it, I mean, there's still Japan's a wonderful country, but they still haven't totally uh, addressed uh, the issues. If you talk to the Koreans or the Chinese uh, or others, but you also um, uh, it, it's a 
appropriate today to think of the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago, the closest we came to a nuclear war. And you have the speech that John F. Kennedy would have delivered if he had had to attack Cuba. This one's really, really harrowing because when, when John F. Kennedy divided his, his XCOM, his, his group in the National Security Council, into two groups, um, one to advocate for a blockade and one to advocate for airstrikes. One of the first things he said is, when you present your recommendations to me, I also want you to present the speech I give announcing that course of action to the nation. And so the airstrike group, this was a, a group that was in favor of about 800 airstrikes on Cuba to knock out the Cuban missile sites. What we didn't know at the time was that those weren't just missile sites being built, they were missile sites already operational. And so the airstrikes really would have been a, a, a terrifying thing because there was the chance that, that the, the Russian commanders at the Cuban missile sites would have retaliated by actually firing nuclear missiles. And so this speech includes a parenthetical. And speechwriters often write parentheticals that say, you know, hold for acknowledgments. In other words, we're going to put in the acknowledgments we need or hold for policy. In this speech, you see the parenthetical hold for first reports of action. And basically what that means is in this parentheses where we don't know the outcome yet, we're going to put the outcome. And it talks about there's loss of life. Um, you know, our, our prayers are with, with the innocent Cubans who died. But what we didn't realize at the time is that parenthetical it could have been Armageddon. And, that, and that's, that's really one of the things I say in the book is Jimmy Carter had this great line that when you die, your headstone has the year you're born and the year you die and, and a little dash in between. And to God, that dash is everything. One of the things I say in the book is in, in humanity's story, that parenthetical could have been everything. Well, that's a chilling chapter uh, to read. Uh, there's another one about a man I actually knew very well, Boston Mayor Kevin White. His city was torn apart by an order. This is back in 1974, I believe, by the order to, <clears throat> to bus students to integrate the schools in order from a, from a federal judge. Uh, Kevin was an exceptionally able, savvy politician. He knew when he was going to give that big speech on a t a, his town that was just totally torn apart, <clears throat> that if he criticized that order uh, and that judge and vowed to work around it, it would really be popular and help his reelection the following year. And that was prepared, but with his values and better sense, that prevailed and he gave a different speech and he's viewed differently in history because of that. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's interesting because I grew up in Boston and the Boston suburbs a, a, li a little after this time. Um, but, I, but there was always this sense growing up that there, that there was kind of this scar in Boston. There, there was kind of this, this wound. And the busing crisis was really, really the, the genesis of a lot of it. Basically, a judge, Judge Garrity, who lived in the fancy suburb of Wellesley, Wellesley. Said, Boston nice. had, said Boston had to integrate these schools. And the plan was, was really slipshod. Um, they basically sent the, you know, they basically linked town to town to integrate the schools. But, but ultimately then linked up, you know, basically Roxbury and South Boston. And, and, and South Boston did not want this. And it's amazing because this is not that long ago. There was incredible violence and loss of life. Um, 
when when the buses bringing the mostly black students to South Boston arrived, they people threw bricks, people threw bananas, people chanted horrible things. Um, police, you know, the police officers protecting the students. Many of them were from the community in South Boston. They were called traitors. Um, and and Mayor White was just exhausted. He was exhausted fighting this fight that even though he believed in integration, even though he was a deeply progressive person, he, he was tired. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to follow the judge's order. And so in his state of the city speech, he prepared a speech basically saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not following the judge's order. I'm going to shut down South Boston High School rather than integrate it. Um, I'm going to give this very right-wing group of parents, I'm actually going to have the city support them in their claims before the court. And, and he had this speech, and then ultimately he decided not to give it. And I was able in the course of this book to talk to his chief of staff at the time who said, look, he was a, he was a progressive guy. He didn't like the way this was happening. But remember also, Nixon had just resigned. And, and one of the things that, that, that Mayor White talked about is, look, the president just left office because we are a nation of laws and we have to be a nation of laws. So I don't like this, but this is what the court has decided and I'm going to follow through with it. And, and not only did he follow through with it, but he basically told South Boston to suck it up. Um, and, and one of his great lines was, um, there is no odor save death worse than that of a public official too frightened and fearful to say above a whisper what he honestly believes. And so Kevin White said what he believed. He did the right thing and he ran on it. He didn't run on it, but he ran and won re-election one more time. He won re-election. He won re-election. Jack Germain said said he was the best instinctive politician he'd ever met. Uh, So that's high praise indeed. James Carville. Oh, okay. So, Jeff, uh, let's start off. I think we're going to have disclosure here. I think you did help uh, somebody with a, a, a work of art back even before you were Jeff, Jeff Nussbaum. So, so, so James, in fact, in, in the acknowledgments in the book, I got to read this to you because I, I thank you, James. And I say, James Carville taught me that a desk is a perfectly fine place to write, to write assuming there's not a ballpark horse track or Cajun restaurant available. And so that was one of the great le- great lessons you taught me, James. <laughs> so uh, you've, you've had uh, this remarkable, by the way, in, in, in the Boston thing, what, wasn't Louise Day Hicks, do I remember her as being like oh, you, yeah. at, on the front line of the anti-bus and stuff? You, if I remember good, Al, Absolutely. Yeah. She plays, a, she plays yeah. a major role. And in fact, the night before the busing was, was supposed to go into effect, the mayor showed up um, at, uh, at, Billy at, uh, at Billy Bulger's house, yeah. um, and Louise Day Hicks was there. And basically, there's this incredible scene where, where the mayor's basically sell, telling Billy Bulger to tell your brother, Whitey Bulger, the mobster, that he better not create more trouble than he's already creating. And, and, and by the way, could you be helpful? And Louise Day Hicks and Billy Bulger are both there, and, and neither of them are helpful. In fact, they remain deeply unhelpful throughout the entire process. But Whitey Bulger was part of this story too, because um, John F. Kennedy's childhood home, um, you know, was, was, was firebombed, um, you know, and, and people thought Whitey Bulger was behind it. And they thought the, the, the Bulger gang 
um, was going to rally South Boston. So it, it was really ugly. And, and Louise Day Hicks was was absolutely a big part of it. Good memory. Kevin had beaten so, Louise Day Hicks for mayor seven years earlier. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, go ahead, Jim. There, there, there's a hilarious, I think it's a Saturday Night Live riff where they have these clan people having a meeting, you know, and so there's all these guys, you know, these guys, you know, Southern actors, et cetera. And so one guy says he's from the Northeast and they go, oh, he said, no, it's okay. I'm from Boston. And they said, oh, that's fine. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it's like, it, no, no line is funny unless there's an element of truth to it. <laughs> I think yeah. there was some truth. To it. Yeah. No, what they no, used I'm to call Boston up, up South, up South. So yeah. I'm, uh, Obviously, planning or trying to plan a trip to Japan because uh, I, I, the, our ambassador over there wants me to show how he's single-handedly changing the world. <laughs> but in, in your thing on Hirohito is something I've taken this real interest in. And I went to Berlin, and I want you to address this a bit, and they very much acknowledge their history. I mean, it, right. they don't glorify it, but it is very much acknowledged, you know, Monument to six million slain Jews. You have the, the topographies of Terror Museum where the Gestapo was. I mean, do, do you understand what happened? Japan doesn't do that. They don't. They, in Germany, you have to learn about the Holocaust. You know, and, and it's just culturally. And I know you you did this, so you you're somewhat of a student. What is it they going to tell me when I go there and say why you don't, why do you just like Act like this never happened. And it, it's almost the way that it is over there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, not, I've not been to Japan and I can't speak to it, but I think there was a real cultural shame. And, and I think one of the things after World War II, it, one of the things I found in researching this book is it was such, the, the country was destroyed. I mean, absolutely, completely destroyed. Um, mass starvation, uh, a half million Japanese who had fought in the war when Japan surrendered, were essentially abandoned um, wherever they were in the world and took years to find their way home. Um, th there was just such a deep cultural pain and deep cultural shame. And, and you know, even the way the empire worked, it's, it, we think of Japan now as sort of a liberal, quasi-democratic, progressive country. But at the time, people weren't even allowed to mourn their sons who died. They were allowed to mourn that they fell on behalf of the empire, but they weren't allowed to sort of express their personal angst at what had happened. And so I think there's just an, an incredible amount of cultural pain and cultural shame and a desire not to revisit. And this gets to the idea of, of, of the emperor. One of the times he wanted to apologize was before the war crimes tribunal, but one of the times he wanted to apologize was in the 1950s. And at that point, the current prime minister said, no, we're putting this behind us. I don't wanna revisit this. And so I don't know exactly why. I'm sure people spend a lot more time thinking about that. But it's just one of these things that, that you're right. You know, I've been to Germany. They live with their history daily. Uh, Japan seems not to. You're right. So the, the, I don't know why I stand on Japan, but yeah. okay. I'm weird here. It, there's a little bit of a revisionist history here on, on Hirohito. There's a, a historian named Herbert Bix. It, the book is academic, and I can tell you, I read the whole thing. Amazing but, Pulitzer Prize winning book. He yeah. maybe wasn't quite as innocent a guy as we're kind of led to believe. I think it was smart to put him in there to try to sanitize him, everything. But but he was a little more involved in this stuff than that, it was convenient to admit for a while. That's absolutely right. We kind of, and America was complicit in this. We basically said he was a kid. 
He was led astray by this cabal of warmongers. He wasn't really in charge. And, and you're right. And the, the Bix book, which I relied on heavily for this, basically there was an American deputy secretary of state who said, look, he had his hand in the cookie jar. We, we know who he was and what he was about. And he did have more of a role to play in this. And that's in part why, why we think Hirohito wanted to apologize, why he was so hard sick, because he recognized that he indeed had a significant role in this. So before I turn it back to you, Alan, and of course, thank Jeff, but tell all of our listeners here. I, I've known Jeff's mom. He's lived with me. We worked together on a book. I know his family, and I and also know his talent. And in, this is not going to be his last book. I promise you, he's one of the most creative, straightforward, decent, smart people that I've ever known in my life. And it's just been a, a, a real honor to be able to have you on this show, Jeff. And uh, it's just a terrific book. I've, I've read some of it. I'm going to read more. Some of it is painful to read. I probably, <laughs> yeah. probably have to get a little fortified before I read some of the stuff. But congratulations <laughs> to you on, on, on a great book and many more to come. And you're just one of the better, more creative people I've ever known in my life. So thank well, you very much. I'm honored to have you on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. I'm blushing, James. I appreciate I will it. Second, I will second all of that, uh, James. Just, just a couple more, Jeff. Um, you know, um, Donald Trump was a mortal enemy of accepting responsibility. That's the one thing he would never, never do. And I think one of the more inspirational chapters is that you wrote is in the memo that Supreme Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower wrote on the eve of D-Day, 1944, when 156,000 American, British, and Canadian troops were about to launch the largest amphibious landing in World War and in world history, and the fate of World War II really might have been in the balance. Tell us about the memo he wrote. Yeah, so one of the things, um, some people know about this, but one of the things um, that, that he did in advance of every invasion, every operation he ordered, he wrote a, a speech, a short speech, apologizing for it in case it failed, in case it failed. And in the case of D-Day, um, he, he also envisioned its failure. And he was very, very much um, informed by what had happened at Dunkirk. He, he was terrified that we would leave uh, hundreds of thousands, we'd get hundreds of thousands of troops onto the beach and they would just be there. Uh, Eisenhower was worried that they'd just be there to be mown down. And so the night the order went out, um, barbed wire was put around the encampments of our soldiers um, and our landing forces because they didn't want the word to get out and they didn't want people to escape. Um, and then D-Day happened. And D-Day happened. And, and so... The night before, uh, I'll take a step back, the night before he watched the, the airmen take off and then he sat down and he wrote this very short note and in his haste, he misdated it, um, but apologizing for the failure of the D-Day invasion. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that it's a very, very useful illustration of the language of leadership because he basically, in this first draft, he writes, the troops have been withdrawn. And then he crosses it out and says, I have made the decision to withdraw, the to withdraw the troops. And in a couple places, he takes out that passive voice and puts in the active voice. And I just think it's this wonderful example of the language of leadership, that leaders are action takers. And in that chapter, I find this great old quote from Ulysses Grant, where he says, I am a verb. I am a verb. 
And the idea being that leaders take responsibility, leaders take action, leaders don't use their words to hedge, he to hedge things. Um, and so D-Day succeeds, Eisenhower folds this note, puts it in his wallet, forgets about it. Two weeks later, he opens up his wallet, he sees it's in there, he throws it away as he has with other speeches many times. His aide, Harry Butcher, fishes, at it, fishes it out of the trash, and, and now we have it for pos posterity. And Jeff, and I can actually add, add something to that. Um, uh, in, in that note, he said, the responsibility is mine alone mm -hmm. for the failure. But I teach at Pennsylvania uh, with his grandson, David, with whom he was exceptionally close. And David told me that his grandfather told him he actually kept that note on his person for a month. And the reason he kept that note on his person uh, for that long was because it was only then that he felt certain that the bridgehead was secure and Overlord would not have to be redirected. So the notion that suddenly on June 6th or June 7th, you know, with that heroic landing that everything was taken care of, Ike worried about, about the success of Overlord uh, right up until uh, early July. Uh, and, and I think that's just an illustration of... His yeah, leadership. I mean, I think we, in retrospect, we think things happen quickly, like D-Day landing succeeded and we march on and win World War II. But of course, there was a hard winter slog. There are many more battles to be fought. And right. so in retrospect, we see it as a turning point. But there were many months and many battles to go uh, until, the tide of tour, uh, until the tide of war really turned. Jeff, final question for me, at least. Who do you wish you could have written uh, a speech or speeches for? Uh, what historic figure would you love to have written speeches for? Oh, God, that's a great question. Let me think. Um, I, I mean, I think FDR's fireside chats remain just the pinnacle of the form, that, that a speech doesn't need to be an oration. It needs to be a conversation. And when you go back and read those fireside chats, they're just so wonderfully clear and, um, and approachable. One of the things I tell people when I teach speech writing is the average American reads at an eighth grade level, eighth grade level. And FDR in those fireside chats spoke to people at a level they could understand. And that didn't mean that there weren't sophisticated concepts that he talked about, but he spoke in an, in an approachable way. And so I just, I, I love those more than anything. He was great. He I, I conceivably might have been even greater with Jeff Nussbaum, although that's a, <laughs> that's a high hurdle. James, I know we want to thank Jeff. Is there anything I do want to thank Jeff. And I, 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 he's just had that just remarkable career so far, and he's got so, so much of a great career ahead of him. And, it, it, you know, it's really, uh, Jeff, you, th this book, the, the concept, the idea, the execution is just utterly brilliant. And I suspect one day, Somebody's going to write the collected speeches that were given that Jeff Nussbaum wrote, and they're all going to be good. But well, probably Lincoln, I mean, Roosevelt was a little bit like Lincoln. He really didn't need much of a speechwriter. No, he was pretty no. good at it. Although, no. although, you know, Roosevelt had someone help him with speechwriters, a guy named Sam Rosenman, Rosen, whose, yeah. whose grandson-in-law is none other than our Attorney General Merrick Garland. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. I did not know either. That's fascinating. So, well, Thank you so much, Jeff. General back there. Jeff, you're great. Everybody out there, undelivered. Uh, undelivered. It's out. It's out this Undelivered. Week. Delivered. Now, you go to Amazon or your local bookstore or wherever and get undelivered. You will, you will just <laughs> love reading it. Thank you, Jeff Nesbaum. Oh, this right. is so fun. Al, James, thank you so much. All right.
All right, James, now our listener questions, um, a segment that we always love. We always look, love to watch where they're from. This is Ryan in Robeson County, North Carolina. Oh, wow. wow. That's a, that's a, <laughs> Didn't they have a, a lot of trouble with the... <laughs> that's a unique county. Yes, very. It is. Uh, he, he said, when did the Democratic Party start bleeding our blue-collar base, and what happened? Uh, that is, you, that, that's a question, it's a really sophisticated question. I, I think what happened was, is the party got more educated and more coastal, it, it sort of pulled away from these, from, from these voters, and of course, Trump came in, with, with, particularly Trump, an explanation for why their incomes had been declining or were stagnant. And I, I think that the party has become overtaken by its coastal wing and it didn't have very good distribution and we've you know we, we need to come and reassert ourselves and we need to work on younger p- people in these uh, in these red states and these purple states also to try to increase turnout but that's where that if, if you're going to come back the way you come back is you got to stoke up young t- youth turnout particularly among non-white youth turnout because the, the, the older whites that you have lost they're gone they're not coming back. I mean, you can you can cut the margin some, and it can be very helpful, but but mostly we have got to get out of our coastal educated comfort zone, and I just don't know if we're capable of doing that. Next question comes from Chris in San Diego, California, who says, "One of the Democrats going to take off the gloves? Why didn't Biden bring in Al Franken? <clears throat> he would have been a more effective DNC chairman. What do you think about the job?" that Jamie Harrison is doing. To me, he seems invisible. He seems invisible to me, too. I think James, who knows more about this than I do, thinks the role of the DNC chair isn't terribly important, Uh, but he he, he certainly isn't elevating. I like Al Franken a lot. He got a raw deal. He really did get screwed. Uh, I'm not sure you could bring him back, but if you did, I think he'd be a more effective spokesman than a lot of the people that Biden is employing. I think it's a good idea, and you want to know why we we lose it in the rest of the country is because people like Kristen Gillibrand insisted in running Al Franken out of the United States Senate, and all he asked for was hearing that air out. He wanted due process. They, the the coastal elite wing of the Democratic Party just does not believe in due process, and you know when when that happens, people see that, and they don't like it, and I don't like what happened to Senator Franken. I don't like it at all. Uh, You know, in terms of the DNC, I see that Cedric Richmond is leaving the White House and going over there as a senior advisor. Uh, I like Cedric a lot. He's a New Orleans guy. He's very political. Uh, Hopefully he'll he'll be of some assistance. But we're not going to be saved by the DNC. We're going to be saved by people organizing, people understanding what's going on, what's happening in their lives, that the values of the country are, are at, at profound risk. And I'm sorry, we're just going to, somebody's going to have to pick up their piece and, you know, fight this thing off and, and charge and get something accomplished. And I, I, I don't, I don't have a beef with the DNC or anything else, but I don't think, I don't, you know, think they can help on the margins, but this has got to come from within. Yeah. People have to dig deep here and get this thing done. Be good if they start helping even in the margins. James, the next yeah. question is really a, a follow-up to number one and number two. It's from Dominic in Las Vegas, Nevada. He says, oh, he interviewed twice. 
with a DNC last year and was asked questions like, what pronouns do you prefer? And tell us your experience working with, my, my, with minority, minorities. My eye rolls sunk the interview, I'm sure. My question is, do they try to lose white males? You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think... That, that they are people, and if you go look at the DNCs, it's all activists, they would rather lose with people that they think are like them than win with people that they find morally inferior to them. They, they, and I, I, I know that every person listening to this show that is a Democrat knows it. There's a certain kind of Democrat, and frankly, a lot of them are DNC committee members, that that want that their coalition their coalition is much more important to them that we get you know than it is to win elections and losing elections actually makes them feel pure and good and righteous and not slimy and that that's what's happening within the party and that's why they're asking these questions and people and you got to understand nobody likes that outside of of a, a few coastal elites. No one does. Most people don't know what a pronoun is from anything else. And, and why this has become some defining issue, I have no idea. And, and that yeah. our, our listener in Las Vegas, which I'm going to one of my favorite places, actually, I got to go out there today for not a very happy event. But, yeah, uh, but uh, yes, this is indicative of a lot. And the the... the Understand how what the DNC is, and understand how these people that run it are elected, and you'll see where the problem is. Next, Pete in Stamford, Connecticut, says he asked, "Does Charlie Chris stand a chance against dictator uh, DeSantis, or does Val Demings have a shot against Marco Rubio?" I'm trying to target my political donations. Uh, Charlie Chris does not have a chance, I'm afraid, against DeSantis, as bad as that governor is. Val Demings is one of the best Democratic candidates this year. She's really, really good. I think it's uphill, not because of her, but because of Florida. Florida is just a very tough state these days. And uh, she's got a lot of money, uh, so I don't think money is an, an object for her. Uh, if I were, you said, you know, tell me where, where the races lie. I guess you're looking for where you go. I'd give, I'd, I'd look at Ohio. Uh, I'd look at Nevada. I'd look at North Carolina. My, my kid's working in the North Carolina race. Uh, let me point that out. Uh, and I'd, uh, uh, you know, look at, uh, you know, maybe Michigan, not for a Senate race, but for others. James? So I'm... I'm- a little bit different on Florida. In 2018, on a statewide ballot, uh, given felons the right to vote, passed at 64%. In 2020, a $15 minimum wage passed at 67%. If you look at the 2020 presidential, where we got beat was Miami-Dade because we were asleep at the switch. Uh, in, in terms of, actually, I think Nikki Freed who's the ag commissioner, statewide elected Democrat in Florida, uh, would be a, a, a much stronger candidate. We have got to get, and Val is a great candidate. She's got a great profile, and uh, she's, she's, a, she's a real fighter. But if, I mean, Charlie Chris has been, been both parties been around forever. I don't have anything against him. But we've got to make way. For, for, in particularly in Florida, for some some younger talent here, and I think Nikki fits that bill. I, I honestly do, and I'm, I'm way out front on helping Val. I've been sending her emails and everything else, and I, I think we just massively underperform in Florida. 
under Paul. Well, you know, it was 50 years ago, a long time ago, where, where the Democrats had the same kind of a problem in Florida. And then they came up with Lawton Childs and Reuben Askew and a bunch of young, new, dynamic people. And they did very well in Florida for yeah. a long time. Bob uh, Graham? And then Bob Graham came in. And uh, yeah. you're right. That's what they need it, to do. It, 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 we, we just can't allow ourselves to atrophy. Yeah. And that's that's what's happening. And I, 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 not only do I think we should not abandon Florida, I think we should go in guns a blazing because you don't concede a state that big with that many electoral votes with that many Democrats. You just don't do it. Yeah, you 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 got to make sure you do better with those with those uh, Hispanic Democrats. And I, Ooh, I'm not talking you, Cubans. I'm talking you, those you, Venezuela thank you, and thank Colombia. Thank you, thank you, defund the police. Great oh, job. Oh my God, uh, yes. And Hell of a job. That's the big one, but it's deeper than that, too. So you, you got to turn that around. And if anyone should be able to, to work on that effectively, it would be Val Demings. Uh, I think she can. the sheriff. But um, I still think it's uphill, I'm afraid, this yeah, year. I don't, I don't well. doubt that it's, that it's uphill, but, it, it, you know, sometimes it's necessary to get, to get take on the top hill. of the hill. <laughs> Kyle in Portland, Oregon, James. Bottom line, since World War II, we Democrats do better when we're in charge of the economy than Republicans, and it's not close. Why are we not making this argument enough? Does it just not stick, or are we just bad communicators? <laughs> well, it's one or of both. the great... Uh, our, our, yeah, Alan Blinder, who's at Princeton, is, wrote a book on this, and the title was, It's Not Even Close. Right. right? And, you know, a, a lot of it is... Uh, it, it's, it's in the reporting. It, 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 people just hate to admit that. And they say, well, yeah, the jobs are good, but the inflation is bad. And it's, it, it, I, I, I don't know. And by the way, there was, the, the, the deficit is coming down like drastically now, but no one would believe that. Half the plurality of people in the United States thinks that no jobs have been uh, created under Joe Biden, which is decidedly not true. So how much blame is it as Democrats, as poor communicators, and how much is it blame goes to the way that these economic progress and the way these numbers are being reported? I don't know, but the, 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 our guy from Portland is right on the money. It, it, it's not even close. And the, the truth of the matter is, and I've written about this, I don't know how many times, it, it never moves the needle. People still will insist in, in they'll still write stories that they understand the economy better than we do, which is just decidedly untrue. It's provably untrue. And it's not close. It's no, Alan Blind goes through the chances that this is random and it's almost non-existent. And you can do it a year in till a year out. You can figure it any way you want to figure it. It's a massive difference. Our next question comes from Joy in Glastonbury, Connecticut. I don't know where Glastonbury is. Joy, write us and tell us where Glastonbury is. It sounds interesting. It sounds like it's in like Fairfield County, but I don't know. She asks, why can't NATO convene an emergency meeting and vote in Ukraine, Sweden, Finland, and any other country, providing the benefits and protections that are part of membership? Um, I think I, I think NATO expansion has been, on balance, clearly good. This is not the time to let Ukraine in. I mean, that uh, in the middle of a war, uh, that meant that if we let Ukraine in and Russia is doing what they're doing in Ukraine, that means American forces have to go in, or NATO forces have to go in, which would be Americans. I think at this stage, that's not the thing to do. But down the road, I hope NATO uh, admits Sweden, Finland, and other places, and someday Ukraine. 
I, you know, I'm a big fan of this Pope's. I hope, and I say this, his idiotic statement that NATO is the reason, is is at fault for for, for this illegal criminal operation that's placed in in Ukraine. I hope and I pray that he has a back channel to Putin and he thinks by saying this he can get Putin to the negotiating table. Because absent this, this was a grotesquely irresponsible statement by a pope that I deeply admire, and I'm, I'm flummoxed by it, and I hope there's a, a diplomatic reason, there's some larger picture that his holiness sees that I don't. But that's, that statement is just flat out erroneous, harmful, and doesn't make it, to me it doesn't make yeah. any sense. It, it, totally it's agree. And, and, you know, and what's changed is now Finland in, in the, the, and the Finns have just been a thorn in the Russian side forever. They are some of the most creative, uh, clever, innovative people they in really, the world. I've only been there once, but boy, it's an interesting place. It really oh, I've is. Been, yeah, I, I, the best farmers market I saw was in Helsinki. Wow. Man, it, I didn't realize it. Place that far north had such good produce, but I mean, they're, they're an amazing country. Our final and, uh, question, James, comes from Sandra in Staten Island, New York. James, I think you're going to like this question. She says, do you think there is oxygen for an Andy Bashir or Mitch Landrieu to run in 2024 as an alternative to Biden if he doesn't run, or is Biden the only moderate that can win the nomination? So uh, this is a very good question. And, and the, we talk about some difficult things here. Well, first of all, Andy's numbers are really good. I, I, I didn't realize they were as good as they were. He's the governor of Kentucky. He's the governor of Kentucky, and he's right. a great guy. Uh, I like him a lot. Of course, as you know, I, I, I don't like Mitch Landrieu. I worship Mitch Landrieu as my mayor. So I have a very good affection. You know, it, it, so much of so much is saying, well, the, the party's going to have to nominate a, a female or we're going to have to nominate a person of color. But I think Democrats in 2024 are going to be in the same mood as they were in 2020. And that is the most important thing is not your gender, not your race not just sexual orientation, not anything. Can you win the goddamn election? That is, that is the first, second, and third most important criteria that we have. And I think much more than people realize, the rank-and-file Democrat feels the same way. And if the Democrats think having a white male is going to increase their chances of winning the presidency, they'll vote for it in a second. Look at those primaries. You mentioned the one in Ohio yesterday, but just, uh, you know, she was a black woman that won, but she beat a left-wing black woman, and I think every indication uh, is that that's... Oh, you talk about Chantrell in Cleveland? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's great. Yeah. She's great, and and, and Ning Turner's one of the more reprehensible people in American politics. I mean, ask the Bernie people. She was the chairperson for the Bernie campaign. They've been very public in, in saying what they think about her, and let me assure you, it's not very much. Yeah. Okay, keep those questions coming in. If we didn't get to you this week, uh, we'll get to you next week. Uh, and I want the, uh, the uh, questioner from Glastonbury, Connecticut, to tell us where she's from. Thank you very much.
All right, James, uh, my outrage of the week this week, um, Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas is a very able official and an impossible job. Trump created an inhumane and miserable mess on the border that's politically lethal now for this administration. So the secretary doesn't need any new headaches. Specifically, he doesn't need the agency's new, quote, disinformation governors, governance board. Uh, end quote. It's apparently intended to counter disinformation from Russia or domestic terrorists or criminals. So that's a worthy project. This is not something that they ought to be doing. It's, it's, there's, there's not any way or probably the right venue to address these problems. Deep six that board, Mr. Secretary. Well, mine is not outrageous. So, uh, yesterday, I had one of the most moving things that's happened to me in a, in a while. I drove up to Jackson. They call it two museums, a Museum of Mississippi History and the Civil Rights Museum, which are just wonderful museums. If, if you're traveling in the summer and you want two things that I think are two of the most remarkable things in the country is the two museums in Jackson, Mississippi and the Muhammad Ali Center in Louisville, Kentucky. They're just stunning. And President Clinton spoke in honor of who I think is one of the really great Americans, uh, Governor William Winter, who died at 97. And he, he was, grew up in Mississippi, obviously, and a typical thing. And in World War II, his job was to train black soldiers. And he came to the realization then that it was idiotic to have a segregated military and became a, a, a very, not just a, a very effective voice uh, for, for civil rights in Mississippi. And he was really honored. Now, former Governor Haley Barber made a good point. They paid for it themselves. He said that the... the he wanted the people of Mississippi. He, he issued bonds, and he said he didn't want that to be funded by anybody else. He wanted, he wanted Mississippi to pay for it. And I actually thought that Haley made a, a good point. And, it, you know, and, and you just think of the remarkable life that, that William Winter had, and his wife, by the way, a remarkable person. And do me a favor before I forget, they had a, a kind of montage video of his life. And one of the people that was very effective on it was Peter Hart. <laughs> well, we so went please. one time. You know, when I was the head of the Profile Courage Committee at the Kennedy Library, we gave a Profile and Courage Award to William Winter. And I got to tell you, that was a unanimous vote. He was an extraordinary citizen. Oh, okay, put Jackson, so Mississippi, on your, on, your, on your bucket list. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist, Magic Spoon, and Real Paper in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. So please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. <laughs>